As a developer, you love building things that are fun and that matter. Me too. Do you want to add authentication to yet another app? Do you want to stay updated with all the security issues and patch them? Why not leave it to the experts? Auth0 is the easiest and fastest way to implement real-world authentication and authorization architectures into your apps and APIs. Allow your users to log in with either regular username and password, social identity providers like Facebook and Twitter, or enterprise identity providers like Active Directory, Office 365, etc. Or without passwords, with an email login like Slack or phone login like WhatsApp. Getting started is very easy. Add authentication to your Ruby app or Rails app, Sinatra, and others in less than 10 minutes by writing only a few lines of code. No credit card required. Get the free plan or try the enterprise plan for 21 days at auth0.io slash rubyrogues. That's the number zero in Auth0. Auth0 is trusted by developers at Atlassian, Mozilla, Bluetooth, Optimizely, Financial Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Try it out at auth0.io slash rubyrogues. Remember, that's the number zero in Auth0. And get back time building core features. Hello, Ruby Rogues, and welcome to another episode. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Hal Fulton. Hi there. Now, Hal, we did a My Ruby story a, a little bit ago, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes, but I just, by way of introduction, want to talk a little bit about how I got to know who you are. Now, way back in the nether days of my Ruby story, my, my story, you wrote a book about Ruby. Uh, that's what they say, yeah. Yeah. Now, it was the Ruby way, if I remember correctly. That's right. And it seems like the other one that people were talking about at the time was the Pickaxe book by Dave Thomas. Do you want to just kind of give people a little bit of perspective on how that came about? And, and then you can do an introduction as to who you are and what you're up to these days. Okay, I'll give you the um, three-minute history of how I got into Ruby and wrote the book. I was at IBM, and I was complaining to a coworker that I was never in on the ground floor of any new technology. I was always a second or third generation adopter. And he said, well, you should learn Ruby then. I said, <laughs> I said what's that? And this was in, um, I guess, October of 1999, something like that. And they had just started an English language mailing list for Ruby, principally so that the um, Japanese could talk to the Europeans. Uh, Ruby, of course, started in Japan, and it uh, had spread into Europe, especially Germany. But as soon as it was in English, you know, Americans started to jump in. And I believe I was one of the first 10 Americans to learn Ruby along with uh, Dave Thomas, Andy Hunt, you know, a few others. And eventually, there was a rumor that a publishing company was thinking of making a Ruby book, which was kind of unusual because there was really only one in progress at that time. The pickaxe, I think, had not quite uh, been published. It was still being still being worked on. So I said, well, I think I could do that. And I wrote out a, um, a proposal for the publisher, and they liked it, and the rest was history. Nice. Well, it was definitely one of those resource books that was nice to have when I was getting going. 
I'm glad to hear it. Um, it was actually the um, the second English language book on Ruby, the Pickaxe, of course, being the first. Mm -hmm. And I actually was um, helping as a like, reviewer, tech editor, whatever, for the Pickaxe while it was in progress. And there was a um, there was a time when I had to like write a blurb for the inside front cover, and I said, "This is the first Ruby book anyone should buy." <laughs> Thinking to myself, "Yeah, and I know what the second one should be," but um, mine was not even public information at that time. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. And I'm, I'm excited to just, you know, have you on and, and kind of talk, you know, about something that affected my story. And, you know, I, I don't know where this falls into Dave's story at all. Um, if, if you read or used the Ruby way at all as a, a reference, but as a reference, yeah, but I'm not really a big reader, honestly, you know, hence uh -huh. my love for video tutorials and stuff. But uh, when I saw the name Hal Fulton, I'm like, that name's so familiar. Where have I seen that before? And then I picked up a book. I'm like, oh, crap, he's an author. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. The Ruby Rogues, a few years ago, we actually came down to Lone Star RubyConf and we um, did a session, kind of a panel session at Lone Star, and that's actually where I met Hal for the first time, was at Lone Star Ruby Conference. So, yeah, that was kind of fun and exciting, and it was it was nice just to get to know a bunch of other folks. So, anyway, so Hal, we brought you on because you're going to be speaking at the Ruby Dev Summit. You're going to be giving us a talk about, is Ruby the new, or is Elixir, sorry, the new Ruby? And I'm curious, so I've seen some people talk about it as, hey, you know, this is the new Ruby, this is the new way to go, and then I've heard other people saying, you know what, if you need um, this kind of thing, then go with Elixir, and if not, and you're comfortable with Ruby, then stay with Ruby. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, is Elixir out there to replace Ruby, or is that just kind of where people are going now, or, or kind of what's your take on that? I wouldn't say it's um, out there to replace Ruby. I mean... There are still languages in use that have been used for, have been in use for 30, 40, 50 years. And I think Ruby certainly has its place, but Ruby is um, increasingly unsuited to the modern world in terms of, um, well, the fact that it doesn't um, handle multiple processors very well at all. And that is sort of the future. Mm -hmm. If you're if you're not doing something that is processor intensive, where you really need speed or parallelism, you know Ruby is perfectly usable. I suppose it will be usable for many years to come. But uh, there is um, there is a wonderful article that I only read two years ago. I wish I had read it much sooner. The article by Herb Sutter uh, called The Free Lunch is Over. Are you familiar with that one? Uh, no, I'm not. Basically, he argues that for years and years, programmers got by sort of riding the gravy train of Moore's Law. Right. Like, 
you write some code and 18 months later, your code is twice as fast. <laughs> magically. <laughs> and and that that went on for a long time, but we're we're reaching sort of the limits of Moore's law and we're reaching the limits of, you know, how much we can cram onto a chip and, you know, that kind of thing, how much memory we can use. The um the future as we see it right now is in multiple cores, multiple processors. And that's not something that Ruby is good with, but it's something that Erlang and therefore Elixir is very good with. So I think um, that that's a big part of what I see happening. Uh, some people say that object-oriented programming is dying, you know, for just that reason, um, and that functional programming is finally going to come into its own and be the future. I'm, I'm paraphrasing what uh, Bruce Tate told me a couple of years ago, but I don't know if I would go so far as to say that OOP is dying or is dead or is useless or the radical things that some people are saying. Mm -hmm. But I do think that functional programming is really starting to show its usefulness to the general programming community in a way that it hasn't necessarily before. I mean, I, I got two degrees in computer science and I never looked at a functional language. You know, you could argue that was you know, a flaw in my education, but um, I think at that time, you know, OOP was considered the big thing and FP was sort of a, like a side issue, like, you know, the Lisp freaks, you know, knew about that kind of weird stuff, but mm -hmm. the rest of us, you know, we just, you know, we go with what the mainstream is doing. And following the mainstream is not always a good idea because a lot of good ideas get left by the, by the wayside. Right. So is it then, um, is it the multi-core stuff or is it the functional stuff? Or, I mean, what is it that makes people, you know, move over from Ruby to Elixir. Is it kind of all of that? Is it the pipe operator? I freaking love that thing. I love the pipe operator too. Um, but I don't think um, little details like the, the pipe are going to, you know, make anybody change languages or, right. or anything. I think if they can get performance and scalability that they couldn't get as easily another way, then they might change languages. I think it's all about the, you know, the, the multi-cores, multiple processors, and mm -hmm. FP is, is what enables that to work smoothly. Gotcha. So, so it's kind of all, all related. You know, the FP enables a lot of the concurrency and the, I, I think a lot of that comes down to immutability. I mean, I, I've talked to a few people about um, Elixir and about um, 
some of the the systems out there and yeah it's it's the immutability that makes um the state across processes or across um threads really nice and then yeah just a lot of these other aspects of of the way that the elixir or the sorry the erlang virtual machine is is architected makes it really easy to get a lot of concurrent work out of your machine and so yeah if you have more cores then you can get more performance out of it right and of course um elixir is built on the same virtual machine as erlang as you said the thing they call the beam b-e-a-m and it um is very battle tested i mean it's it's feature rich it's been in the field for years and years now it does have have some cruft on it, you know, some complications. You know, big software systems always accumulate digital barnacles, if you know what I mean. But um, the the reliability and maturity of the virtual machine is, you know, a big part of what makes Elixir attractive, because you're you're not only using something that has been tested for far longer than your language has existed, but you're able to interoperate seamlessly with Erlang because you're compiled down to the same bytecodes. Mm-hmm. So one other thing that I'm, I'm kind of curious about, um, the uptake for Ruby, a lot of that came from Rails. And so, you know, you saw a lot of people coming over because Rails just gave them a ton of um, convenient tools and, you know, uh, what am I thinking, convention over configuration and all of that stuff that Mm -hmm. just made Rails really nice to use. Um, I haven't seen as many people talking about Phoenix so much as Elixir. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is... Is it Elixir that's the draw here and not the web framework like it was for Ruby? That's kind of hard to say. I think, um, in a sense, Phoenix doesn't add as much to Elixir as Rails adds to Ruby. You know, I've, I've spent many, many years of my career explaining to recruiters that I'm an expert in Ruby, but I don't really know Ruby on Rails. Mm-hmm. If I had a nickel for every hour I'd spent explaining that, I would have a lot of this. <laughs> but um, the nice thing about Phoenix, as I understand it, and disclaimer, I'm, I'm not a web guy in any sense. I, I've done relatively little web programming, sort of as little as I can get away with. Uh, but my understanding is that a Phoenix app is really just an Elixir app. Like you don't um, you don't think of it as something you know separate with a you know gigantic API of its own that you have to learn. Now, unquestionably, there are you know libraries and tools and whatever that you have to know about. But I've heard it I've heard it stressed you know in in conversation that a Phoenix app is just an Elixir app. And personally, I think one of the very best things about Phoenix, which I, I don't know much about, you know, one of the things that I love about Phoenix is that it is not called Elixir on Rails. So there won't be that um, 
that confusion in the future. You know, future generations won't have to um, you know explain that yes, they they know all about Elixir, but they you know they don't know Phoenix. You know, they at least they have different sounding names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, Elixir definitely seems very appealing from a Rubius standpoint. You know, the speed, the threads, you know, I think all of that's been something that we've just kind of, in the Ruby world, just been almost kind of like trying to ignore the issue and just continue on with our happy path. And I'm primarily a, a Ruby on Rails developer, you know, doing web design and stuff or web development. And I think that for the most part, I've been able to accomplish everything either through a gem or through some custom methods that I've been needed that I've needed to do, and I've not really had any hiccups. And that's going from de- uh, delivering high performance applications as well as doing some things that are a bit slower but still very usable uh, in the web space. But I think that in a lot of cases. Elixir can shine in areas where Ruby will fail. And, you know, as you guys have said, with the CPU processing. So any kind of NLP or natural language processing, I just, I don't think Ruby is going to cut it, you know, or any kind of AI work and stuff. I know Python's been kind of the language of choice because of the available libraries. But do you think that that's where Elixir is really going to start to shine is with that kind of direction with natural language processing with uh, AI or uh, augmented reality stuff? Or do you think that it's going to slowly creep in into the web space and take over? Frankly, I hope that people start to remember that there are other kinds of programming besides web programming. Because there's a whole generation of people who think that the web is everything. (laughs) <laughs> and you know, having learned, you know, years and years before there was a web, you know, I don't feel that way. You know, I, I sometimes want to ask people, you know, can you use your web skills to write a compiler, you know, or something like that. But anyway, that's just me being a curmudgeon. No, but I think um, unquestionably, Elixir is going to be used for web applications, whether it's Phoenix or whatever. And I think that'll be a big part of its usefulness. But I hope that it's also used in neural net applications, whatever. I mean, someday, someday I hope my laptop has a thousand processors and it's going to need some kind of, you know, operating system and, and if you're coding some kind of language that can handle a thousand processors and, and we know Ruby isn't it. Um, I don't know. I think, um, anything that will end up requiring distributed, um, distributed processing, you know, um, lots of things going on at once concurrently. I think that's where, in the next few years, Elixir is going to shine. And some of that will be web, but some of it, I hope, will be other things. I can kind of see that. I'm I'm curious, 
um, how you got into Elixir. I mean, was it just somebody said, hey, try this, and you tried it, and it was great? Or, you know, was there something that really drew you into it? I guess um, it was something that I sort of casually heard of. First of all, I was uh, curious about Erlang because I heard of it several years ago. I believe it was in 2007. I heard of it at a Ruby conference where Rich Kilmer showed the um, the classic film on Erlang, you know, a little mic or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and he didn't realize, by the way, until people laughed that it was kind of like Monty Python had kind of had that vibe. But anyway, he explained to us about Erlang and why it mattered. And we were suitably impressed, or I think a lot of us were. I know I was because I was completely unfamiliar with that entire way of thinking. And I don't know whether this is directly related, but there was a guy named Tony. I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Archieri, 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 Mm -hmm. whatever. The guy who created Rhea like in 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be a Ruby-like language running on the Erlang VM. And it got into its early stages and eventually was abandoned. But I I was very curious about that. I was drawn to that. I even gave a talk on it once, although I didn't know much about it, because having looked at Erlang, it wasn't just the functional paradigm that put me off because I was unfamiliar with it, but it was the what I found to be the bizarre syntax of Erlang. And I think um, some people in the Erlang community reacted against Elixir for a while because they they thought people were just saying, you know, Erlang is ugly, so we've put a pretty face on it. But I think that mm-hmm. uh, once they they tried Elixir, they found that there was more to it than that. You know, it's uh, Jose Balin gave a talk several years ago called "It's Not About the Syntax" or, or something like that, because uh, Elixir legitimately has features that Erlang does not, and it's not just a matter of how the language looks. But anyway, I um, I was curious about Erlang, tried to learn it. I was curious about Rhea, followed it for a while, and then I found that Rhea went away and there was something new called Elixir. So I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I sort of halfway followed it. And apparently, around that time, Dave Thomas looked at it and said, oh, that's kind of interesting, but not really. And then he, like, went away. And then, like, a year and a half later, somebody talked to Dave Thomas and said, "Um, you should look at Elixir again. And so he looked at it again, and he fell in love with it. And he said he hadn't been that excited since he learned Ruby. And, of course... My 
metaphorical ears perked up at that. Mm -hmm. And that was when I, I really started reading more about it. Now I can't, I can't say that I'm proficient in elixir even now. I find that for me at least it has a completely different kind of learning curve, rather, rather steeper than Ruby. Yeah, but it's not as bad as Swift. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you went there. About Swift. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I have uh, looked around at the Elixir syntax, and I, I think it's not where Ruby is as far as, you know, ease on the eyes, uh, something that's fun to read. Uh, right. In most of the cases, but I do see, you know, there are a lot of similarities and those similarities, I think, would make it easier for a Ruby developer to move to a functional language like uh, Elixir. But I think that moving from and I guess this is where my brain just kind of uh, has trouble wrapping its head around is moving from the object oriented world into a functional uh, language and how that would kind of look. Yeah, that, um, that has bothered me also. It's, it's been a major part of the learning curve, just trying to ditch OOP and go toward FB. And in terms of, in terms of object orientation, um, Elixir is not like Ruby at all because I don't think I don't think in any meaningful sense you can say that Elixir is object oriented. I'm I'm not sure that functional language can be object oriented. You know, I'm sure there are a thousand people who would you know argue a thousand fine points related to that. But um, no, I, I understand what you mean by Elixir not being as easy on the eyes. I have a quirk that I don't like too much punctuation. And that, of course, was why Pearl always looked like gibberish to me. It looked like a cat walked across the keyboard and they called it a programming language. <laughs> Ruby, by comparison, it seemed very clean. It seemed like, um, oh, like something by Robert Frost or E. E. Cummings, you know. And I think that's why they use the, the joke term poetry mode in Ruby, where you use, you know, relatively little punctuation. But Elixir has so many features and so many little doodads that it's just sort of necessary to have a lot of punctuation and you know, a lot of it, you know, kind of like makes me stumble when I'm reading it. And, you know, at a glance, it sort of hurts my eyes because, you know, the punctuation looks like little jagged pieces of broken glass, you know, thrown into the code, but uh, still not, still not as bad as Pearl, but, all personal preference on my part. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way 
to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Yeah, and I'm just uh, ragging on Swift because I recently wrote uh, some iOS apps and it was just miserable. You know, like at the end of a variable, you put a question mark or sometimes a bang. And it just depends. I'm like, what is this madness? So uh, I, I definitely think that Elixir is much easier on the eyes than other comparable languages, but uh, definitely doesn't have the facade that Ruby has. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I like Ruby is that my brother is a electrical engineer, PhD, works for you know, a big fancy company. And a lot of their developers always joke that uh, Ruby is like the Fisher Price of programming. And well, I, I do agree to some point because it just looks so simple. I think that there's just so much untapped power in Ruby and that, you know, I think we're going to see in years to come that Ruby is going to have another surge of hype just because there's so much that it can do that people just aren't doing with it. You know, yeah, it's a slower language and, you know, you can't compile it down. It doesn't run fast, but there's so much it can do where sometimes speed isn't the most important thing. Sometimes threads aren't the most important thing. And, you know, sometimes you can drive libraries written in C or whatever. Like there's this guy, um, Errol Howard, whom you may remember, Mm -hmm. an old time Ruby guy, used to work for NOAA, which I guess is pronounced Noah. I don't know. But he did a lot of scientific number crunching and just incredibly CPU intensive stuff. And intuitively you would say you would never use Ruby for something like that. But he did because he had all these fancy libraries that did very fast number crunching. And he was able to use Ruby as the high level language to glue those pieces together and just sort of do rapid prototyping without having to worry about all the details. And he said it worked very well. (laughs) You know, one of my um, earlier Ruby non-Rails applications, you know, I was trying to be fancy and try to find the next prime number. It didn't work out too well. (laughs) But, uh, no, it was fun. You know, it's... It's a fun language. And I think that's the thing that, you know, kind of gets me the most about Ruby is that I enjoy writing it. You know, I can work mm-hmm. 
so many hours in a day, you know, for work related or side projects or whatever, and never really get that burnt out feeling. And that's just maybe for me personally, because, you know, I'm very OCD in a lot of things. But Mm -hmm. For me, it's something that I enjoy doing. You know, I spent six months doing some .NET work, and I was miserable. I couldn't sit down and focus for four hours at a time doing something like that. I would just come home, and I was depressed, honestly. And I never got that feeling with Ruby. I would hit frustrations, and I would hit some roadblocks, but it wasn't ever a true depression state. So... um from do you ever experience anything like that and you know how do you feel elixir kind of compares i think i know what you mean about um never experiencing a true depression state because problems with the tools you're using can wear you down like sometimes you think oh well this is a very minor deficiency in the language but if it, you know, rubs against your brain, you know, nine or ten times a day, you know, it's it's tiring, it's exhausting. You know, you 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 make an error, you think, oh, I did that again. That must be the like tenth time this month I've done that. And it's because the language just doesn't fit your brain. Well, Ruby doesn't fit some people's brains, but it, it fits mine. You know, it, it felt like I was putting a hand in a glove when I put Ruby inside my skull, you know. And, yeah, so I, I do find that it's relatively painless to use. Not that there aren't bugs, not there are, that there aren't frustrations, you know, and all kinds of things that are inherent with programming, but not as much. Now, Elixir... I find, me personally, I don't find it as painless as Ruby. I find it to be, well, let me make an analogy here. If you think about the way machines are built, you know, you could have like some like real hackers thing with like a Raspberry Pi connected by wires and alligator clips to this other thing and everything is all exposed and fragile but you can get to everything you know that's one way of that's one way of doing things it's sort of like like c or assembly language whatever or you can imagine a nice shiny pretty enclosure with only a few little inputs or jacks or whatever and it's impossible to open this enclosure and you know you get frustrated because you know that if you could just get inside you could flip one little jumper and and your life would be better you know those are sort of opposite extremes that's more like more like java i would say where you want to do something but you just can't because language just stops you now Ruby, Ruby SC is sort of a compromise where you have this nice, shiny, pretty enclosure with very few jacks or inputs or whatever. But there are also these little access panels you can take off if you want to. 
Like um, people always complained that private methods can be called using send. And, you know, I never, I never worried about that because to me, making, making a method private is just, you know, a way of politely saying, please don't call this from outside. Now, if somebody really needs or really wants to call it from outside for whatever reason, Ruby doesn't prevent that. You can like discreetly open that little access panel and get at the wiring. But um, I haven't quite yet figured out where Elixir fits in, but I think in some ways it's closer to the the Raspberry Pi bristling with wires because there are all these things exposed that I don't feel I necessarily want exposed, but but they are and. It's like, it's like, I know this is here, but I don't want to see it, but I kind of have to be aware of it. And I, I guess for me, the prime example is that a struct in Elixir is just a map. But it's a map that has a special key in it that you don't usually see, but you know it's there. And it's what makes that map a struct. And... That just seems weird to me. It feels like there are bare wires hanging out of the enclosure, you know, to me. I don't know if that answers your question at all. Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, every now and then we have some kind of technology in our house that goes haywire, um, usually because one of my kids broke it. But it's something where... I'm too cheap to go buy another $200 baby monitor or something because <laughs> the kids threw it off the second floor and it just hit the wood and broke apart. So they broke off our antenna on our baby monitor. I'm like, I'm not paying $200 to get a new one. So I broke the thing open and started looking at it. I'm like, okay, well, the antenna has been severed. <laughs> There's no way it's getting a signal. So I took the whole thing apart and desoldered the old antenna and had some uh, single strand wire laying around. And so I just soldered this wire onto the antenna connections uh, on the main board of the baby monitor. And so now our baby monitor has this real ugly green uh, wire coming out of it, duct taped on. And I'm telling you, I've never gotten better reception. So... <laughs> So, well, yeah. I, I think we're kindred spirits, Dave. <laughs> the same way. I'm not buying another one of those. I can fix that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the compiler won't do this, but here's a binary patch you can apply and then it will work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, a little off topic, but yeah, I, I get your analogy. And, you know, it's one of those things where I really want to dive into Elixir and since I am a lot more web focused and sometimes mobile app focused, you know, it's really intriguing to see something else out there. And this is even taken on like JavaScript frameworks, since that's where I think a lot of the web development buzz is right now, not even on the backend language focused. But I haven't had a use case for Elixir, at least for the stuff that I've been building, where it would really shine over Ruby. Uh, as far as getting a product out to market fast. 
And I think a lot of that is that even though it has gotten a lot of adoption in the past five years, um, it it hasn't gotten all the libraries, like the gems, so to speak, that Ruby has yet. And I think that's kind of like my biggest holdup where I want to sit down, learn the language over a few months, and then just start building stuff, you know, and not have to worry about the nitty gritty details, almost like the convention over configuration that, you know, has been one of the staple points in Rails that right. I really enjoy, you know, so I can actually focus on my problem, not have to worry about a lot of the nuances of a language or framework. Yeah, I think... Elixir is coming along that way. Nothing happens overnight, of course. Right. I think um, there's some definite deficiencies and possibly some mistakes that have been made. But at the same time, I think that they have they have learned from Ruby and from other languages, and they have they have done things that you know. Are um, how can I say they've learned from other people's mistakes and other people's successes? Like for example, Ruby was around for years before we had Ruby Gems. In fact, the um, I was I was just walking by the hotel, you know, a few weeks ago where we had the Ruby conference in two thousand three. In Austin, and I, I sort of glanced at the hotel and I thought, oh yeah, that that bar, that that's where we all sat and uh, hacked on Ruby gems like until the wee hours of the morning. You know, Rich Kilmer was sort of driving it. He said, uh, you know, we've been talking about this Ruby gems idea, but you know, it's never been implemented. Let's just do it. So the the beginning of Ruby Gems was written right there in that bar in that hotel in Austin. But um, but that was, you know, 2003. And I'd been using Ruby for four years by that time. Now, by comparison, um, Elixir had Hex a lot earlier. Uh, it has Mix, which is, I guess you would say, it's sort of like rake, which is you know a descendant of make, you know, but it also has some code generating features like the um, the stuff you see in Rails. You can use uh, mix to just generate the skeleton of an app. We'll create the directories for you, set up some defaults, you know, all that kind of thing. And that is. Um, that I think is a good thing. I think that's something they picked up from Ruby and maybe from other languages. So there, there are some impressive things that they're doing earlier than Ruby did. So I think uh, in some ways the community is moving faster and I hope that it matures more in the next two years than than Ruby did in two years back, you know, 14 or 15 years ago. But, you know, only time will tell. So what is Elixir mixing, missing at this point then? I mean, wh where are you going to try it out and go, mm, I really kind of need what I don't have? 
That really, that's a very uh, programmer dependent question. Yes. That you could get a thousand different answers from a hundred different people. But um, I think for one example, the time and date handling is a little sketchy right now. Like there's sort of a, a patchwork of things like different modules that sort of they they partly overlap but each one partly brings new functionality and that kind of thing and it's uh, it's so confusing to me that i've just sort of put off learning about it uh that, that's mm -hmm. the only example i can think of right now now there are always people on the mailing list saying gee i wish i had this or i wish i had that and two-thirds of the time it's something i've never even heard of so I'm, I'm not the one to answer that question. You know, I, I'm not, um, I'm, I'm still learning Elixir. I'm not proficient in it just yet. So I haven't, I haven't written much code, written a few things in production at work, but just little things. So I personally haven't sensed, you know, exactly what is missing. Right. All right. Well, we're kind of getting toward the uh, the the end of our time. Is there anything else that we should go into with this? And any other aspects of Elixir, you know, maybe as a successor to or something that Rubius should be looking at? Um, one one thing that just came to mind for me is the community. So a lot of the Ruby community that I have talked to have at least moved partially over there, and so if we if we as Rubyists move over there, is it going to look a lot like what it looked like being in Ruby, or is the community different? I think to some extent it's similar, but of course Elixir is its own thing, and the community is its own has its own identity, which is just fine. That's how things should be. But um, what I see as the general you know, similarities in the communities is there's there's a lot of high energy here. That was that was what I appreciated about Ruby fifteen years ago. There was the excitement, like, hey, I thought I could do this. And then um, you know, he goes and does it, and then it's like a new software package available and somebody uses it to build a tool and there was all this stuff going on and there there are all these smart eclectic people around um dave thomas is a big elixir guy uh james edward gray who i think um originally created ruby rose isn't that right yeah he and i started it together I see. I forgot you were in at the beginning, because um, I've known um, I've known James Edward Gray uh, longer than I've known you. Um, yeah, so you have the the high energy, you know, you have the very smart people interested in a lot of different things. You have the 
the sense of newness and excitement. And and you have the the courtesy, you know, that existed in the Ruby community from day one. And and that is something that I always appreciated. You know, there was that cheesy saying that abbreviation M I N A S W A N. Are you familiar with that one? Mm-hmm. Matt's is nice, and so we are nice. Yep. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't really like the word "nice" so much because it conjures images of My Little Pony or whatever. Hey, what's <laughs> wrong with My Little Pony? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no offense, <laughs> but um, it's it's important for people to be courteous and respectful toward each other. And it's so much, you know, it's it's such a better environment, a better world to be in when people are like that instead of always trying to one-up each other, troll each other, insult each other, mm-hmm. all that kind of thing that you see in, in so many online communities. So those are the similarities that I see. Well, that makes me happy. I, I like that aspect of the communities, the Ruby community and, and some of these other communities. Well, before we get to the picks, uh, Hal, if people want to see what you're doing these days, can they follow you on Twitter or connect with you on GitHub or things like that? And and what are you doing these days? Oh, gosh. I am. The reason I'm not more successful is that I'm into too many things. I. My whole life has been spent thinking that if I do 1% of 100 projects, that's equivalent to 100% of one project. But, <laughs> but it really just means that I had, my whole life has been littered with things that I, I started and, and never finished, whether it was um, artworks or novels or, or software packages or whatever. Uh, so... So, yeah, you can look me up on GitHub if you want to as Hal9000, but you, you know, will probably yawn when you see it. <laughs> you can uh, you can look for me on Twitter as Hal underscore Fulton. I don't tweet very often, but I'm trying to tweet more often. Uh, that's, uh, that's my New Year's resolution for 2014. <laughs> you know, stop procrastinating. <laughs> um, but yeah, just Google me. I'm out there. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Dave, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, so 
My first pick isn't really a pick, but it's a preface for my actual pick. It's Interact.js. It's a drag and drop JavaScript library, which is really cool. Uh, I've been happy with this, done everything I've needed in the past. But lately, I've been playing around with a Shopify one called Draggable, and it's really cool. It just has a lot of, um, it has a really nice API. It does a lot of little different tricks and gizmos with dragging and interacting. So that's my pick. That sounds cool. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump in with a pick. Um, now, I think I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned it on um, the last episode we did with Amir Rajan, but uh, I've been digging into, um, I, I, I've been writing code again. It's It's been really kind of great. Um, and uh, yeah, just just finding a project that I can get fast, uh, get caught up in. It's just been really, really awesome. And so um, I, I'm just going to pick that. I mean, you know, it seems kind of obvious, especially to the people in this show or who listen to the show. But at the same time, I mean, um, it, it's just making me happy these days. So I'm going to share it. Um, a few other things that I'm going to pick um, as we go along, if you're interested in front end stuff. Um, yesterday I went out to lunch with John Lindquist. He's a front end developer guy, works for egghead.io. Uh, he and Joel, I forget Joel's name, last name all the time. Anyway, they started egghead.io and they have a ton of courses that you can go take on react, angular, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the last thing is, is I had a call yesterday with a podcast listener and I don't know if a lot of people are really aware of this, but you can get 15 minutes of my time uh, by going to devchat.tv slash one five minutes. And if you do that, then you can actually go and just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk for 15 minutes. So I had somebody do one of those calls yesterday. Um, he's out there trying to find a job. He's also interested in starting a podcast. And so we talked for like 15, 20 minutes about what he had going on and, you know, just gave him some advice made some microphone recommendations, et cetera. So um, if you want to claim a little of my time, then you can definitely do that. Uh, Hal, what are your picks? Oh, gosh. I think I'm going to be a true rogue and pick nothing computer-related. I want to um, pick two of my favorite novels, The Secret History and The Shadow of the Wind, a, uh, a couple of organizations I belong to, the Mars Society and the Long Now Foundation. Actually, I just joined that one yesterday after meaning to for many years. And I discovered this cool iPad app called Gesturement. That's a combination of the word gesture and instrument where you like mm-hmm. play weird melodies with the multi-touch feature. So pardon me for not being bringing in any computer stuff. Hey, it's all good. We're always looking for new interesting things to check out, so... And half the time I pick chicken nuggets for my picks, so good. <laughs> or power tools. <laughs> yeah. Nature's perfect food. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, uh, thank you for coming, Hal, and talking to us. Um, we'll go ahead and wrap this episode up, and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks all right. very much. Talk to you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.